live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to the Water Zone Show this evening. to the water zone. I'm Rob Starr, along with the person I call the smart one, the nice one, the great one, Mr. Chris Davey. Thank you, Rob. Appreciate it very much. Right back at you. Pleasant afternoon to you as well. You may not know this, but you probably do. And Chris, Chris Austin, who's beyond in a few minutes, certainly knows. Here in Southern California, we are preparing for a hurricane this weekend. That's an unusual thing here. Yeah, that's what I heard. It's uh, It was tra- went from a tropical storm to now a full-blown hurricane called Hillary. Exactly. Oh. Cat 4 uh, and uh, the remnants, it'll still be a tropical storm, but the remnants will be right off the San Diego coast by uh, mid-weekend. Wow. Yeah, it's supposed to hit by Monday and Tuesday pretty, pretty bad and leave a deluge of uh, floods and garbage and all kinds of stuff. We will see. Uh, pretty different. So how is how is everything out in uh, Southern California for you, sir? It's hot right now, Rob. Not as hot as uh, not as hot as PHX uh, Phoenix, but uh, yeah, <laughs> it's pretty warm out here. But but as I say, this uh, the weather coming in this weekend should cool it down uh, quite a bit. So you know, time to batten down the hatches. You know, tie your mother down, do all that stuff. Yeah. Well, it's 109 here. It's sunny. Uh, last night they said it was going to be 100 percent rain. Oh, we we didn't get any at all. All we saw is lightning. Uh, but you know we should check somebody up in uh, northern central California, Miss Chris Austin. Miss Chris Austin, how are you today? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you doing? Good. How's the weather at your end? You know it's hot. It's over 100 degrees. Uh, um, but it's supposed to cool down in the next couple days. Uh, it's uh, it's this uh, the hurricane isn't going to really reach this far northward, but we may get some remnant uh, moisture, and we may get. Uh, they're saying there may be some rain and some thunderstorms, but not uh, not what they're saying could happen in Southern California. They're talking like four to seven inches of rain, which is that's a lot of rain for this time of year. So. Uh, you know, yeah, batten down the hatches in Southern California. <laughs> wow, pretty, pretty bad. So, what's the uh, what's the latest in, uh, in in water news? I know there's a couple things going on uh, aside from the storm. Uh, I know that the, uh, the Fed's granting to replace uh, water tunnels beneath roads that are harmful to fish. Yeah, they're uh, they're doing some work on on replacing uh, culverts. Uh, and this is their funding. The uh, the federal government is funding uh, some projects all over the place, and a couple here in California, uh, because culverts uh, present an obstacle to fish that can't migrate upstream under these culverts. So making them more fish friendly is going to be important. So there's that. Um, and uh, I think uh, beginning of the week the. Bureau of Reclamation uh, announced new operating plans for this upcoming year, sparing a lot of the more draconian cuts uh, for the lower basin states. But, uh, you know, of course, we're, we're not out of the woods yet. 
but the situation is improving in the Colorado system to the point where they're not, uh, they could roll back some of those large cuts that were coming. But the basement states still need to get together and uh, negotiate how they're going to run the river uh, starting in 2026 and beyond, uh, which is going to require cutbacks. Everybody knows they have to cut back. Uh, you know, again, it's, this is not like, you know, everything's great on the Colorado. It's just a, a momentary breather for people. Uh what else is going on? What's what's the top issues that you see aside from that? Well, I, actually, one story that I thought was kind of interesting I posted today is that, um, you know, up in the mountains, uh, there are still systems of wooden flumes running around and supplying water to people in some of those cities, small cities they are. Um, and these are water systems built back in the gold rush days. I mean, like pre-1900s in some cases. Wooden flumes that are, you know, ca uh, carrying water throughout the Sierras to down to cities like Sonora, um, small cities in Tuolumne County. So there, the Forest Service has put together a plan where they're trying to protect now uh, these uh, systems the best that they can out in the forest. So they're doing fuel treatment around them uh, and and other projects to to start you know to provide more protection. But I just thought it was interesting that uh, that still today systems that were built in the gold rush days, the minor days, are still being used to supply municipal water in some areas, and, and that's, I always find that interesting. Uh, you know, there's still... That, that, it's, hmm? No, no, I was going to say, I mean, that, that, that that's unbelievable. I mean, it, I, I would assume, well, I should assume, maybe I'm guessing, that they, they need to go check on, on contamination and, and all of that other things, because, you know, things have changed since 1849. Yeah, well, I mean, they're running water out of out of uh, reservoirs and things, so I don't think contamination is necessarily an issue. But but wooden flume structures going through a highly flammable forest uh, can really mean trouble. And I I do believe uh, like four or five years ago they did uh, burn through and damage a flume, which then made you know put put out. Some uh, some cities water now. These are small cities in the in the foothills. But I actually had someone <clears throat> who uh, emailed me from the blog, and they asked that they were thinking about buying a house uh, in in one of these small foothill communities, and she was asking me about uh, Sigma. You know, the groundwater management is that going to be a problem? And and I kind of and I explained to her that well. It depends because, you know, Sigma only applies to uh, valley basin aquifers and things in the mountains are a little bit different. So you need to find out which, you know, which system you're on. But more than that, I said, the problem is that you're thinking about buying a house in a place where you, they still get their water through wooden flumes in the, in the Forest Service and through water treatment plants built in the early 1900s and uh 
that I mean, that infrastructure is still up there and still being used because these are small towns. They don't have a lot of money. Uh, they think about Jackson, Angels Camp. You know, if you drive through those cities, they're very small. Water treatment plant upgrades are very expensive. Um, so there's still a lot of these very, very old systems running in these historic communities still today. There's a, there's a lot of campgrounds up there. I know um, Ronald McDonald House has a, uh, a, a children's camp up there for the summer. Oh, and yeah. It, <clears throat> there's a lot of great things. I mean, the, the Sierras are just a beautiful place, and, you know, if you have a chance, you should definitely go up there. You know, camping and Lake Tahoe is, is gorgeous, although apparently Lake Tahoe has way, way too many tourists. <laughs> It's yeah. really, well, actually, it's not that they have too many tourists. It's just when they had the pandemic, a lot of people that had vacation properties up there decided they'd go live in them. And so they have a lot more live-in people now, and the tourists, it, it you know, are just adding more on top of it. So they've actually had to uh, come up with a plan, a tourist plan for Lake Tahoe you know, how they're going to manage this because they they had to, they basically said, look, you have a lot more people living here and you all live here because you love it here, but we need tourism and we need to protect, you know, Lake Tahoe as it is. So they came up with a plan on how they're going to do that. Uh, well, I've only seen pictures of this year. I haven't really been there. Someday I have to coerce uh, Mr. Davey to go fishing with me up there. I haven't been fishing in 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> Easily done. <laughs> Thank you, sir. I used to have everything, and now I, all my kids took all the stuff years ago. So I, I have I have two rods left. That's all I got. <laughs> Nothing I else. Extras. I've I've got multiple extras of everything. No worries. Oh. <laughs> Why don't you jump in on some questions? I know you have. I will. So I was going to ask Chris because I I, I you know and Chris I got to say right up uh, right off the top here I didn't search the entire Maven's Notebook for this. But this week, there was an interesting story down here in Southern California, San Bernardino County, especially <clears throat> about a political fight over um, old wood, old pine removal up in the up in San Bernardino County, um, the mountains up there. And, and uh, a, a, the way it's structured, it's thinning, right? Taking some old, old growth trees out from around um, all over the San Bernardino Mountains. And then uh, local guys are fighting that and saying, well, you should spend that money on structure protection. In other words, clearing a defensible space around habitable areas. Uh, it's a big story here, but I'm not sure if it's on your blog anywhere. I didn't see it, Chris. Are you aware? No, I, no I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't see that, ne that necessarily. Although, is this like, this might be, uh, th there was a story about uh, environmentalists protesting a 13,000-acre project by Big Bear, which I imagine this is it. Um, yeah, that's it. Yeah, it, you know, they they can't really figure out, uh, it, or it's, I guess it's hard to say what we should really be doing with the forest, and there are people that think different things. Um, like the... One one line of thought is that the forests are overgrown. Um, therefore, we need to thin out the forests, and we need to, you know, 
clear out the low, low, lower canopy, the lower lying stuff, so that the ground's more bare and leave the bigger trees. And uh, and there are those that say that's the wrong thing to do because if you do something like that, then the fire just moves faster and overwhelms yep. the cities, you know. And so, it, you know, there's it's a big debate. And I don't think the science is uh, is very clear on what is the right thing to do. <laughs> um, you know, there's there's so many things that that we debate. You know, what to do with all this biomass that we pull out of the forest? You know, put it into biofuel plants, but then people don't like those either. Um, Not sure what what the right thing to do. Hmm? Yeah, I lost you there for a uh, second. <clears throat> yeah, we we thought that we lost the signal. Well, you're you're good. Okay. Yeah, so it, it's just hard to know what to do because I don't think the science is completely clear. I agree, and no. I think it's a political it's a issue, right? With the spending the state money to be able to do what they're doing. And then you got the citizens up there and saying, if you're going to spend that money, spend it around my space and make it safe for me to live there. So, you know, I don't know if I see <laughs> both sides of the story equally, but uh, that's that's the fight. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I I I don't know. I again, I don't know what the answer is. It seems to me, you know, that I think we do need to thin out these forests. There's probably a happy medium somewhere in that. And we're not should not be pulling down the old trees, but we could probably pull out some of these things. Maybe we don't pull them out all the way. I don't know. But the, also the challenge with that is that uh, when you do go through and clear out the forest like that, it's very labor intensive. It's very expensive, and it only lasts for a couple years before it starts growing back. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, and we have, what, millions of acres that would need to be treated like this. And it, I, I don't think it's, um, I, I think it's going to be very difficult to do that. Even if we could, it would be very expensive. And, and there are just some areas we could never reach with the equipment we would need to clear it out. Yeah, well, I think you're right. So the other... Oh, Rob, I'm sorry. I was just going to say uh, the other the other story. What that that was on the notebook this week is the is the um, you know we've talked about this before. The Great Pacific Garbage Patch, right? Um, oh I, yeah. You know, know, no, it's not a California thing, but I love the story, Chris. It was it, it, it was awesome. And, you know, I can't sit here and tell you what I can quantify what uh, you know twenty five thousand pounds of trash in one fell was like or what it looked like or what impact it had on it but um just a great story yeah yeah definitely i was i was really glad they to um, see that hmm? they did 50 tons in four weeks yeah yep, now that. that's just scratching the service but at least someone's doing something about it right <laughs> my my understanding is years ago it, it all went to asia or china to, to uh, re recycle that, but now I, I read that that's going now to Victoria, Canada. Oh yeah, um, well, yeah. These these are these 
particular ships are going back to British Columbia with their collected garbage. But, <clears throat> yeah, the garbage patch, um, I mean, that's, that's floating trash that unfortunately uh, comes off the land. I mean, that's not like <clears throat> the, yes, we were sending our plastic to, uh, to China and they stopped uh, taking it, but that really has nothing to do with the garbage patch. The garbage patch is trash getting into the ocean and the currents are carrying it out way out to this area, just kind of where the currents lead to. And, I mean, if you see what happens when it rains and something, they have, excuse me, they have big trash booms out in, in Long Beach and other areas to catch all the trash in its enormous amount. And, and it, they can't catch it all, but that's, and that's just what's coming off the rivers. There's not, you know, everything that comes off the beaches. There's just an enormous amount of trash that lands in the ocean and it gets, in the current, and that takes it out to the garbage patch. And it's not just California. I, I speak about California because I've seen it, but it, it's all coastal nations and not just the United States. But, you know, it's, it's a worldwide problem. Uh, and just like we have one in the Pacific Ocean, there are trash gyres out in, uh, in the Indian Ocean and in other parts, too. So... You know, it's a, it's a worldwide problem. And it's really nice to see that, uh, that there, someone is trying to address this. Uh, and this, you know, the, and it, so it's great. They, you know, figured out how to get all of this stuff out. Um, I, I don't know if this is the, the group, but my husband would buy these little plastic bracelets, right? And if you bought the bracelet, it, it some amount of money went to fund uh, ocean cleanup. So that may be how they're funding this. I think it's, I have a couple a, of those bracelets myself. It's a, it's yeah, a my husband deal. would buy them and give them out. So. You know, I, I also read, I, I don't know if I would consider this garbage or trash. Actually, it isn't. But... I was reading a while back that the Indian Ocean is like one of the roughest oceans or bodies of water. And, and when you see these cargo ships that carry the, these gigantic containers that you see the 18-wheelers pull, they said every, every year hundreds or thousands fall off the boats into the ocean. And, get, and they go down, what, three, four, five miles deep. Can you imagine for all the years they've been doing that, how many of those uh, containers are, are are in the Indian Ocean, floating on or not floating, but sitting on the bottom of the on the floor. Oh yeah, and if they get out, like um, they'll they'll they've used the information to track where the currents take things. Right, like uh, a, um, a a container of shoes, like tennis shoes, got dumped at the. Uh, you know, overboard by accident, uh, you know, right. I'm going to assume. And, and so they, they put a call out. And if you found a pair of, you know, found a shoe on a beach, you were, you know, to report it. And they, and by doing that, they could figure out, you know, they learned a bit about the current, uh, but you know, not, not really what you want the the way you want things to happen. It's, it's kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of sad. I think, you know, so much stuff gets, dumped in the ocean 
you know, now back in the 1950s, they actually had a plan in Southern California to dump their trash in the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> but, but thankfully, they chose not to do that. Uh, but apparently, they did dump uh, barrels and barrels of DDT in the ocean uh, that, oh, yeah. that was recently found a few years ago. I remember uh, that. Yeah. It's kind of sad when people, you know, you walk down the public streets and you see cigarette butts and paper and gum. I, I went to, we did a project with a, high, with a local high school in Riverside, California, and they had a cleanup day and they were doing stuff for the ecology. And I couldn't believe all the, all the, all the marks left by the removal of gum on the campus. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> hundreds of thousands of these things they try getting along. That's, and yet that's what people do. They throw it on the floor. Just like cigarettes in a car, they toss them out the window or, you know, stuff like that. I think it's pretty sad that people have to do that. They can't yeah. wait to where they're going to and throw, throw something out in a trash can. It boggles my mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. The world is not That's, your ashtray, folks. No. Yeah, no, that's no. right. Let me ask let me ask one more question, Chris, because I know the recent Maui wildfires, right, they've kind of raised a little suspicion for us here, at least on the West Coast, California, Oregon, for, for the coming wildfire um, season. And I know there was a little bit there was a little bit about a statewide survey that was done that was printed in the in the weekly water news on the on the notebook. Um, you, do you know anything about that? Was it just something that's uh, coming? I mean I didn't see anything. I didn't get anything in my email or anything like that. So and apparently this was back in uh, July before the Maui wildfire. So I know it's top of list and top of mind for a lot of people. I mean, just in my own, you know, work group of work, uh, people at work we're talking about. So do you see that same level of interest, Chris? Well, I think people are concerned about wildfires. It's hard not to live in California and not be concerned about them, especially with the uh with the problems that we have been having with uh, homeowners insurance, uh, so lack he, of huh? Yeah, lack of or being canceled. <laughs> yeah, being canceled. Yeah, and you know it's 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 gonna it's as you can as you can if you the issue is is a national issue and that you know it's getting harder and harder to insure things for various reasons. In California, for homeowners insurance, they're only uh, insurance companies are only able to look at the past and use the past to determine what they're going to charge you for your homeowners insurance. They can't look at what your future wildfire risk is. So that makes it very difficult for them to charge premiums that are going to cover their losses. So you know it's. Uh, and I don't know. You got like it all these hurricanes, uh, and you know that, and the tornadoes they're ca causing billions and billions of dollars of losses. And I mean, insurance companies—they are a business, and you know they can get wiped out by some of these things. So it's a concern. And wildfires are are always a concern in California. I think that was a PPIC survey that was actually done a few months ago, like uh, asking, surveying their opinions on 
California's environmental issues, and then they just pulled that out to, uh, you know, because it was relevant to the Maui thing. A lot of people focused on Maui. Yeah, I think you're yeah. right. It was You're absolutely right. It was. Well, Chris, I'll tell you, man, with the uh, with the unsettled weather was coming up, and right at the beginning of the show, you said it's even going to affect you guys up there in Northern California. We'll have a lot to talk about next week, perhaps from a weather standpoint, after we experience uh, a hurricane here in Southern California. But, um, Chris, good luck up there. Yeah, well, good. Best of luck to you, even more so, you and Rob, because up here was this not going to do us much, I don't think. But uh, down there. Uh, I, I imagine it's going to make for some great surfing, too, for <laughs> those that will go out there. And there will be people in L.A. that will go surfing. I was just going to say that. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Chris, thanks a lot. we got to head for our commercial break. We do appreciate you coming on, giving us the, uh, the lowdown on what's happening with water. And uh, it's, again, to our listeners, please go to mavensnotebook.com, become a subscriber. It's an awesome uh, way to get the most uh, incredible, up-to-date news about water, what's happening. And you can also become a sponsor. It's a good thing to do. And every morning, like uh, Chris Davey and I do, we turn our computers. First thing we see is Maven's Notebook. And she even puts out a weekly uh, a weekly uh, information that we get. And uh, really a lot of good reading on that stuff. So we, we appreciate that. So please do that. Chris, thank you very much. We will talk to you next week. You have a safe week, and uh, hopefully you'll stay dry. Oh, yes, and you too. <laughs> Good to evening, everyone. Good evening. Have a great week, Chris. All right, we're going to take a little break, and we'll be back with our uh, featured guest that uh, he was on before, but we wanted to follow up with such an interesting technical topic that we wanted to explore that more depth. So stick around. We'll be right back, and uh, keep you radio on. KCAA Loma Linda. The legacy KCAA 1050 AM and Express 106.5 FM. Water is one of the biggest expenses for communities, HOAs, universities, golf courses, and resorts. So keeping those costs under control, especially when rates are increasing while water supplies are being reduced, are often essential to a customer's survival. Managing water requires multiple skills, which is why it's been complicated and difficult until now. AquaTrack brings multiple skills and technologies together to help large system users conserve outdoor water and improve the health of their landscapes. AquaTrack's professionals are certified landscape water managers and certified landscape irrigation auditors. The company offers audit services, upgrade advice, technical expertise, and water use monitoring. We already manage irrigation water for the largest homeowner associations in Arizona, and we're prepared to bring our knowledge and experience to help others, including landscapers and designers. Give us a call and hear how AquaTrack saved one HOA some 430 million gallons of water and $200,000 in annual water expenses. AquaTrack is Arizona-based, and you can reach us at 623-594-8689. That's 623-594-8689. Moving up in this industry means getting the most out of each day so you can focus on growing your business. With Site One, 
You're in control, and we're here to help. It starts with the right team. Our irrigation pros can help map out a complete, streamlined system that meet any requirements or regulation. And from the first dig to years after install, knowledgeable experts are available in branch or resources are available online to help find solutions specific to your needs. Next, we make sure you have the right tools to get the job done with the largest selection of top brands in the industry, bringing the latest in Wi-Fi enabled controllers, rotors, sprays, valves, and drip components. And because hard work should always be rewarded, you'll receive personalized pricing and earn loyalty points on qualifying purchases to help you grow. You're in control. Site One is here to help. KCAA. This here. Welcome back to the second half of the Water Zone Radio Show. I'm your host, Chris Davey, along with the venerable Rob Starr, always here, breathing into the other microphone. Uh, and for our broadcast listeners, again, thanks for sticking with us. Same goes for our podcast listeners. So we're going to get right into it, actually, this, uh, this week, because, as Rob said, we have a guest from just a couple of weeks ago, Dr. Michael Davidson. He's back for a second in so welcome, Mike. Are you there? I am. Thank you. Awesome. Great to have you back. So, Mike, just real quickly, rather than do a full bio on you like we did um, last time for any new listeners or folks that weren't on the last one, why don't you take a minute or so and tell our listeners what uh, what you do? What's the, what is a senior development manager at Molaire? Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, pleasure to be back here. Um, my role at Moliere, the current position that I hold, uh, I was asked to develop a department at Moliere for climate smart agriculture. Uh, make this more about Moliere. Moliere has several verticals. They have a history in uh, introducing nanobubble technology to wastewater, aquaculture, mining, oil and gas, horticulture, and surface water management. And the same principles and benefits of nanobubble technology should be applied everywhere. I don't think I've been looking for a place where they shouldn't. haven't found it yet. So they decided to bring in, and uh, we want to develop outdoor agriculture, we can call it, all the vines, trees, alfalfa, row crops, um, all throughout uh, the United States at this point. They do have offices in Spain, and the company is actually global. Um, myself, uh, I've been practicing the principles of climate smart agriculture for pretty much my adult life. And uh, before this, I was consulting uh, mostly East Africa, West Africa, and South Asia. And the pandemic brought me back. And I was very, very fortunate to get hooked up with uh, Moliere. And that's my minute. <laughs> you. you- I was just going to say, Robbie probably could have had more than a minute. But <laughs> so, just listen, Mike. It's the second. It's the second time back, and 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 it's because we just ran out of time last time. And there was, um, mm-hmm. you know, such an interesting story there. And for our listeners, guys, if you want to hear what happened a couple of weeks ago and listen to that, you can catch that podcast. It's uh, it's available right now wherever you go and get your content, or you can go to waterzone.forward.com and find it uh, find it there as well. But um, and uh, 
And listen, Rob, I'll tell you, jump in in just a second, but kind of want to follow up from last time just to just to kind of you know bring this this story mm-hmm. uh, a little bit back into the circle. So the first time we talked, the first session we had, we we went pretty much in detail on the three principles of of climate smart agriculture (CSA) or if you want to mm-hmm. put an acronym to it. But this time we're going to take a little a uh, little different view at it, and we want to ask you about you know your experience over the years, right, and what you've seen in terms of um, innovation and what's been happening in the industry and adoption of those innovations. So um, so if you want, you know, if you want to do a little just like a, primi- a primo of, uh, of what climate smart agriculture is, I mean, you know, I just me- mm-hmm. you know you just mentioned it, sure. but just, you know, kind of bring everybody up to speed, if you will. I will. Um, if you don't mind, I'd like to begin with a correction. At the start, uh, if you recall, when we spoke last, I referred to the Gulf of Mexico as being inundated with hypoxia and, and virtually a dead zone, which is correct. And I said it was about 4,500 square miles, also correct. But then I did the equivalency and said it was about 6.8 million acres. That is not correct. So the easy math is times 540. It's about 2.8 million acres, and I stand correct. Uh-huh. Well, nobody nobody called you out, Mike. So you're you're still okay. Oh, so we're not we're not we're not taking we're not we're we're not taking five minutes off the interview for that penalty. (laughs) (laughs) I'm the hardest critic of myself. Yeah. Oh, only only kidding. For for our list for listeners who may not have caught last week or the other week's uh, broadcast, just real quickly, tell them what nano bubbles are. Okay. I've got two questions here. Uh, I'll do the last one first, second one first. Uh, nanobubbles have been around for 40 years. It's unfortunate that they use the term nanobubbles because they're really particles. The size of a nanobubble is one twenty-five hundredth the size of a grain of sand. You can't see it. The size of a virus. And they are made in a variety of ways, but essentially it's a gas-to-water diffusion process. So to make nanobubbles, you need three things. You need water, flowing water, hopefully. You need power, because our unit needs to be powered, and you need a gas source. Typically for agriculture, we just use compressed air. So we bring a little air compressor for 1,000 gallons a minute flow. It's just this tiny little compressor that we just plug in. And by the shear method, that's the method that we use, we create these nanobubbles. Now, nanobubbles you should hopefully know that they're distinguished from real bubbles. I think I made that point. And they are enriched water. It's water in a different form, if you will, Um, rich with oxygen. And that's the critical part. Um, The characteristics, a few of the characteristics of nanobubbles is they have a slight negative charge, which means that we reduce surface tension of the water molecule, making it much easier for water, anything that is in the water, fertilizer, any nutrients, to actually be absorbed by the plant. In medicine, same principle applies. They use it for exactly the same reasons, so the human body can absorb whatever professional uh, medical expertise wants to put into your body. Um, They're non-buoyant, meaning that they don't precipitate out so it's not like uh, a fountain of air. You want to clean up your pond and you put a fountain in there. 
it might look beautiful, but in terms of overall efficiency, it's probably 25 or 30% efficient because obviously you lose a lot of water to precipitation and the bubbles rise to the surface and disappear. So that is the opposite of the way nanobubbles actually behave. They don't precipitate out, and it doesn't matter what the length of your line is. It doesn't matter how many gallons you're flowing. We have a single unit that takes 5,000 gallons a minute, and there are a lot of other benefits that we can go through. So that's kind of an overview of what nanobubbles are. Um, uh, one of the things that I'd like to expand on that, if I may, is, yeah, you know, we... We always consider, you know, these five critical inputs to agriculture, right? Energy, labor, soil, water, and air. And if you look at, you know, UC Davis does a wonderful job. Uh, it's open access. You can Google it if you want to know the cost of, uh, you know, putting an acre of uh, uh, an acre of ground under almond production or any other crop. Basically, they will give you wonderful wonderful uh, outputs and inputs and all the costs associated and all the critical components that you need to create an agricultural setting. A line item that we don't see is oxygen. And oxygen availability, we all know, is a prerequisite for life in all living organisms. And in plants, what happens when oxygen is not available or insufficient, the cellular functions are compromised. Sometimes it leads to death. So plants respond to lack of oxygen. They have to survive, so they change their morphology. They can't respirate as well. All the phenological processes are compromised. They have to conserve energy. Um, the mineral uptake, water movements are all compromised. So if we don't have oxygen, we simply cannot grow anything. And I think it's a category. Honestly, I've been thinking about this. I think it's a category of agriculture that we need to establish. Um, I do think that Moliere is the leader in the category. And I think the line item is missing, and I think it should be budgeted. I think we should we budget fertilizer, we budget water, we budget seeds, we budget our energy. And I think we need to put into agricultural budgets oxygen. And without it, we simply, none of us can survive. Uh, my commercial there. Um, huh. well, you're right. You know, the, the production of nanobubbles, you could, I understand, could do it in different methods, uh, including cavitation, electrolysis, electrochemical cavitation, uh, hydrodynamic mm -hmm. cavitation. Um, they, I, I even think they did laser-activated active, nano-gold substrates abuse for generating nanobubbles. So it's been around, like you said, for X amount of years. Um, but one thing people don't understand, when you think of a bubble and you think of a soft drink with carbonation in it, you see the bubbles mm -hmm. rise really quick to the top. Nanobubbles, mm -hmm. it's completely opposite of that. They, they just linger around for a long time. Correct. They do. I mean, the reason, look, the reason why you see those bubbles come out of the can is pressure differential. They're going from, right. you know, high pressure to low pressure, um, so they escape, but they're still pretty much in solution. Um, but you don't see the nanobubbles. They're so, so, so small. They're, you 
have to kind of take our words for it that they're in the water. Yeah. And and doesn't temperature affect affect them? For, um, no, I, I, no I, more. I, go ahead. I, I understood they could last a long, you know, for years. They can linger around for years. But uh, it depends on temperature also can either accelerate or decelerate that. Is that, is that true? The efficiency sure. of those? Temperature is a variable. Um, altitude is a variable in terms of how much oxygen. Look, we, we, if given the opportunity, we will take dissolved oxygen tests before we start in a, in a particular project. Um, and then we can actually predict how much oxygen will be in the water. Uh, and that affects how much we put in, based on, based on temperature, it's based on altitude, um, it's based on the demand. But we don't, it's not something, it's important, I think, to point out, nanobubble technology, the way we apply it, is continuous. Anytime the water is on, then our generator is working. So it's not something that turns off, if we put a relay in, so if your pump's not working, there's no reason for our generator to be working. But it is a continuous flow, um, and so when you when you ask the question, how long does it stay in solution? It's really it's there anytime you're irrigated. It's always there. If you put nanobubbles in a in a pot of water and it just stood on a table and never moved, never changed, obviously you know it wouldn't last. Nothing lasts forever. But it would probably stay in solution. I asked my engineers, and they said probably six to eight weeks, just sitting. You know stationary, stagnant. And even in, so what we do in ponds, even if, uh, if it's an irrigation pond, clearly there's going to be movement. But if it's just a decorative pond, uh, in a golf course, for example, I was on a golf course today, we're replacing an aerator with our unit, um, and there's not a lot of movement, we move the water. So we will, we've got a pump built into it. We'll take it through our generator. We'll recirculate it. So we still always get circulation of water because we really want to, we want all the water in that body of water to be oxygenated. Um, when you talk about an ag system, so we only get one path. So that's why we will increase. That's why this is a consultative process. So we need to know how much, and it also depends on our gas source. We can get a lot more oxygen using ozone. Sometimes we use pure oxygen. Typically, we will use just compressed air. So it's a function of, uh, in, a, in a pond, a lot of times we'll look at what is in there, how dirty is the pond, what is the algae makeup, and obviously size and inflow and outflow are really critical um, variables as well. So... Basically, they can reduce surface tension and increase the bacterial deta detachment from any antimicrobial property. And, and then I understand once they burst, they release a high amount of energy-generating hydroxyl and oxygen radicals, correct? And that helps to well, in, 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 uh, inactivate any bacteria like algae blooms and such as that. I, I, am I correct in that assumption? That's correct. Um, okay. And... You know, one of the challenges, as I indicated before, I want it to be kind of a line item. We can check it off. But one of the challenges, ironically, is that it has so many benefits. I mean, besides the reduced surface tension, you know, I talked to growers. I mentioned this last time. And we list the potential benefits they can derive 
by using nanobubble technology. And many growers pick out at the top of the list our ability to reduce biofilm. We actually, because of the slight negative charge, we scour uh, the biofilm off the inside of pipes or actually any channel, but in usually in ag cases, on you know the drip lines, the emitters, so we can reduce the amount of chemicals, whatever it is, hydrochloric acid or chlorine, that people typically inject to clean their lines. So that's another benefit uh, of nanobubble technology. Um, and then, you know, not just bringing oxygen to the rhizosphere, but reducing compaction. Compaction, I really think, is the biggest enemy of self-imposed enemy in agriculture. Anytime you walk on a field, you drive a tractor, you irrigate, we're causing compaction, and you know we just have to dig a little down. We see the roots going sideways. And, um, you know, uh, having, again, the important word here, I think, is continuous, having a continuous uh, stream of nanobubbles and together with the water, um, I think, makes a huge difference in agricultural productivity and soil health. If you don't have oxygen, now we're talking about an you know, anaerobic environment, and that's just a, you know, a fertile ground for pathogens and fungi and all of these things that we don't want to see in our soil and helping the soil, improving the oxygen level in the soil, creating an aerobic environment. Now we have really positive microbiota growing, and we increase the porosity of the soil this way, we have better capillary action, and no chemicals, and no chemicals to do it. It's amazing. I mean, there's so many things that I've learned about this, yeah. from, you know, from wound healing, from selfish sanitation, water treatment, uh, enhancing flavor, food. I, I, I don't want to hog the conversation. I'm, I'm, I'm an engineer, and I like science stuff, but I want to... Chris Davey, why don't you ch chime in? I don't want to take uh, take all the air out of out of the conversation. Go ahead. No, I oh, was go ahead. your your question was really, really to give a very succinct uh, description of climate smart agriculture. Um, yeah. So there's three principles, and to do a climate-smart agricultural project, you have to hit all three. It has to be triple win. doesn't count. Two out of three doesn't count. Um, so the first one is what we call mitigation, is correcting the mistakes. And I think I said last time, my hand, you don't see this raised. Uh, farming in Israel, the first green revolution, was so much fun and so energetic and so many innovations and so little knowledge. <laughs> We just didn't know the implications. We weren't bad people, but we didn't know the implications of uh, spraying almost arbitrarily bad stuff and the way we were deep plowing and doing anything to get higher yields and not really understanding the wider implications to our environment. So mitigation means correcting those things and learning that we're living in an interconnected, interdisciplinary you know, ecosystem. So that's number one. Number two is really what I call the fun part, that's adaptation. That means that now we farm differently. We are aware of our environment. We are aware that agriculture is actually ecosystem management. 
We understand the externalities, and this is where we invite innovation, efficacious, good, cost-effective, important innovations. This is where, and there are so many innovations today, we can pick and choose. This is a lovely part of it. And the second part of innovation is now we are really learning how they can play together and how we can integrate them and find the synergies and really make a difference in in how we grow and increasing productivity and increasing profitability for the grower, which is the third principle. Because farmers are good business people. They are risk-averse. They are skeptical, as they should be. And no one should expect them to be altruistic. So the third principle is adopting these different ways, these different methods and products and innovations, recognizing the ecosystemic implications of agriculture, and making more money, increasing profitability, reducing input expenses, reducing your variable costs, are a must. And if we can't achieve that third one, we know full well that farmers would love to farm more sustainably. After all, their major inputs are the ones that we keep talking about, are soil and water. And if we don't do this right, our soil is being degraded. Water scarcity, we all know, is a greater issue than ever before. But if they can't make money doing it, again, we can't have expectations of them we don't have of any other industry. So those are the three basic principles. Uh, excellent. And I'll tell you, Mike, we may even have to go a third round of this with, with about two and a half minutes <laughs> of airtime left, right? So, I mean, can you, can you? I, I mean, I know you've told me, you've, you and I have had discussions and, and you've seen like hundreds and hundreds of these innovations over the years. And I know they're very yeah. cool and we want to talk about them, but kind of just, just off the top of your head with the two minutes you that sure. we've got uh, sure. uh, left. You know, kind of, can you give us some examples, maybe the top examples of what those innovations are? So I brought three with me today, so let me see how fast I can do this. Um, the first one is the biggest topic. Uh, it doesn't stand out in terms as the innovation, but as, as an important topic. This is a company, it's called Laguna Innovations. It's, it's an Israeli company that is making very small community size, and I'm talking 300, 400 households, wastewater treatment systems. Solar-operated, remote control, and it's amazing that very few other companies have come close to this. This opens up to the discussion of using treated wastewater for agriculture. So in Israel, 100% of the wastewater is used. 90% of agriculture is irrigated with treated wastewater. Spain is at number two at 12%. The world average is below 5%. And in America, it's really very low. So the whole discussion of, you know, water demand management and water supply management has to be held in a planned way. We tend to just pick and choose how we're going to control water. You know, we see the billboards in the Central Valley build more reservoirs great. We know we need more holding capacity, but that's not a policy. And the, what we need to do is, is have a policy discussion on how we're going to manage and control and identify. You know, we do really good job of water demand management. I think we're getting very good at water use efficiency, but sometimes it's not enough, and you have to add water to the pot. And why not use the, that, that golden 
I think, solution is there's 16,000 wastewater treatment facilities in the United States. If you think about it, you put them, you know, in a line, one every four miles, you've got a wastewater treatment facility. Why are we not using that water for agriculture? So that's one. I don't know. The other two, I'll just do one piece. The second one is a company called NOF. Um, they use, when companies um, have to store CO2, it is stored in liquid form. That's how they store it until they put it back into the soil, carbon credits, etc. So this company takes that liquid uh, CO2, they, they compress it, and they use it for cooling purposes. So they'll put it in, in boxes that you see in the field so that as soon as a, a, a cucumber is picked, it is instantly cooled in the field, which is revolutionary because the amount of, of uh, post-harvest loss that we have worldwide is 33 percent. And then the third one is a company called... Michael, 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 Michael we, I don't mean to interrupt, but we got to go to our, sure. our NBC News. We appreciate it. I, trust me, I love talking to science with you because that's what I am a science guy. I love hanging with smart people. That's what I have you on. And I have part over here with Mr. Chris Davey. But we got to go to do what we got to do their news hour. So we appreciate that. We'll contact you back because I want to explore this in greater detail to talk about specific applications. So thanks a lot for joining us. Chris and I want to tell everybody on uh, this interview the most important thing you can do every week is please help keep our planet blue. KCAA Loma Linda.